0: Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Abbas Milani, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is ISIS, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, and it was recorded on April 18th, 2016. Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, I think uh, in planning these uh, Sessions, Hoover should uh, dole out bad news a little more carefully because (laughs) one after another they come and deliver bad news and I'm sad to say the news I have to deliver is not pleasant either. Uh, I should say that uh, as uh, uh, Shakespeare would say, it is with uh, dole and delight that I stand here. Delight because uh, I'm part of this rather remarkable collection of uh, talks, Dole because of two reasons. One is that I have to uh, uh, continue a discussion uh, that uh, General Mattis started last night. And he is an iconic figure. And he gave a rather remarkable talk. And for me to continue, and in some areas offer a slightly different uh, reading of the situation, is uh, very doleful. It is also doleful because the news that I am to give you is, I think, uh, rather somber. Uh, I'm going to basically try to convince you that uh, in all the years I have studied the Middle East, it has never been as close to uh, a very dangerous precipice as it is now. Uh, I'm going to tell you that I don't think Uh, The West, in general, and certainly not the United States, is taking this threat seriously enough. Uh, I sometimes sound like Cassandra, the mythical character in Greek mythology, who keeps saying, this is serious, uh, and no one listens. Uh, And uh, it it is uh, sad, because I I think the threat uh, is far more serious, not just in the Middle East, but I think uh, internationally. And unless we begin to think about it in a serious, strategic manner, unless we begin to appreciate the years, the centuries, if you will, that has taken for this problem to become the problem that we now face, the problem of ISIS, the problem of radical Islam, the problem of the Middle East. Uh, Unless we understand the complexity and the historical nature, we're not going to be able to develop uh, a policy that is commensurate uh, with the problem that we are trying to uh, solve. Now, uh, the reason that I uh, believe we are in a very serious moment is because I think if you look at the history of Islam for the last 250 years, something has been gathering. A storm has been gathering. And what we see in Iran and what we see in ISIS and what we see in the Middle East is, in my view, the continuation of a problem, a continuation of a pattern that has now reached a very, very critical mass for reasons that I will try to tell you. And uh, the reason that uh, it is uh, sober uh, and sobering is because, as Yeats famously says in his uh, great poem, The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That uh, is, uh, in some ways, uh, the reason that the problem, in my view, is seriously uh, undervalued and seriously uh, underappreciated. The seriousness of it is underappreciated. What is the problem that I'm talking about? If you look at the history of Islam in the West, They have lived together for almost 1,300 years, the length of Islam. And for uh, up to about 17th century, Islam was a contender in the world scene. Islam was, in fact, in many ways, uh, a bigger power in 16th, 15th century. In 12th century, it was one of the centers of science and learning and innovation. But after 17th century, Islam began to go into a period of decline. Uh, and it was no longer, to use Hollywood's f- f- uh, phrase, a contender. And once it no- was no longer a contender, a reaction began to take shape in the Islamic world. Uh, s- several reactions, but I'm going to be talking about the one in particular. The reaction that began to... Uh, appear in the islamic world it began to appear in iran it began to appear in a place called arabia at the time a very important unimportant place for the history of the world Uh, and it eventually engulfed much of the muslim world certainly much of the middle east that reaction was to say that the reason the muslim world has fallen behind is that we have lost our way, we have lost our faith, and we should go back to the ways of the prophet. We should go to the ways of the past. Salaf, the Arabic word for the past. We should go to the ways that Muhammad and his immediate uh, successors, the four successors, followed. We should, in fact, go to the absolute literal text of the Quran. Islam's holy book, and we should go to the literal text of what in Islamic uh, jurisprudence and Islamic theology is called hadith. Hadith is the words and deeds of the prophet as recounted by reliable sources. So in Arabia, a man by the name of Abdul Wahab began to say, every form of Islam before me has been heretical after the prophet. And we should go back to the way of the prophet, and re-establish a new Puritan Islam. Eventually, he made a pact with one of the tribes in Arabia, the Saud family. And together, they divided power in that country. Political power was in the hands of the Saud family; the spiritual hands was in the hands was to remain in the hands of the Sheikh Abdul Baha. And his successor. So, in a sense, today in Saudi Arabia, you have two royalties: the royalties of the spirit, the family of the Sheikh Al-Bahab, and the royalty of the Saud family, who rule politically. And there was an implicit political pact: the Sheikh's family would handle matters spiritual; the Saud family would handle matters political. This would have been a minor footnote in Islamic history. There had been similar pacts made. There had been similar forms of puritanical Islam that had emerged in the history of Islam. But then something happened in 19th century, late 19th century. The price oil was discovered in Saudi Arabia. And by 20th century, the price of oil began to increase. you know the rest. Saudi Arabia became a very, very rich country. The form of Islam that is propagated in Arabia is called Wahhabism. It is extremely intransigent. As I said, it is puritanical. It believes it is only the right version of the Abrahamic faith. In other words, it is not only the only version of Islam, it is, only the, it is also the only rightful Abrahamic religion. In other words, Jews and Christians must succumb to the new message, because the new message is now clear, Bahabism is the last word of Allah, and it must be obeyed. And it must be obeyed in a letter of the law. Abdul Bahab said very clearly what today almost all radical Islamists say. Abdul Wahab said, we don't need a constitution. We don't need man-made laws. We have all the laws we want. We have the Qur'an. Qur'an is our constitution. And what is missing in the Qur'an, we can find in the right hadith. Man-made laws, and he would say man-made, but Bik would say man- and woman-made laws, he said, are absolutely inferior to God's laws. We want God's laws. We want not God's laws, to be more precise. We want Allah's laws. Because Allah is the greater of all gods. The word Allahu Akbar, which all of you have heard, is for some reason mistranslated as God is great. Allah Akbar doesn't mean God is great. Allah Akbar means God is greater. Allah is the greater of all the previous gods, the god of Judaism, the god of uh, Christianity. So uh, if oil had not become the fuel for this, this would have been a minor footnote. But because in 20th century, uh, the the alliance now had a lot of money, the Sheikh's uh, ideology was now being propagated around the world in a way unimaginable before, to give you a sense of comparison. Saudi Arabia has spent in the last uh, 15 years close to $80 billion, $80 billion to propagate its form of Islam. Every madrasa you see built around the world, many uh, schools, many mosques, many endowments, many chairs at American universities. Canadian universities, European universities, are part of this rather remarkable amount of money. Again, this is Hoover. Hoover has studied Soviet Union. The entire propaganda budget for Soviet Union from 1921 to 1991, its demise, was about $10 billion. So this is almost sevenfold. And it has gone into proselytizing a form of Islam that is very unbending, it's very self-righteous, and it believes that it has all the answers in the world. But there was something very important about this. As I said before, this was a very apolitical form of Islam. It said, we attend to matters spiritual, the royal family attends to matters political. We accept, Abdul Bahab literally said, We, as good Muslims, accept the authority of the king. So the king has political power. We, the clergy, the muftis, have spiritual power. Then something very important happened, another name you should all know about. And I doubt many of you might have never heard of it. My students at Stanford, I just taught a class. Uh, two days ago, I asked 35 of the best and brightest of America whether any of them had heard the name Sayyidoghut, and one person had. Sayyidoghut is the most influential Muslim thinker in 20th century. Let me repeat, the most influential Muslim thinker, the most radical Islamist of 20th century. Virtually all radical Islamists, All radical Islamists have been influenced by his ideas. And I'll give you some rather remarkable confluence of influences. He was the the ideologue of what is called the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood, I'm sure you have heard, is the party of Morsi, the party that came shortly to power and made such a mess of it that the Egyptians rose up And then the military decided to cash in, and it took power. The Muslim Brotherhood basically said much the same thing that the Wahhabis said, which was, we want a government of Islamic laws. We have all the laws we need in the Quran and in the Sharia, and we should create an Islamic state, and that this Islamic state is a global phenomenon. Again, very much like what the Wahhabis were saying. But with one very important difference. We, they said, the Muslim Brotherhood, we will engage in jihad to realize this dream. We will begin to fight. We are political. We don't accept any political authority. Any political authority, other than the political authority of our group, essentially, this is what Sayyid al said, is unacceptable. Now, this was an Egyptian phenomenon. Muslim Brotherhood was essentially an Egyptian phenomenon. But then the Egyptian authorities, Nasser particularly, came very hard on them and uh, executed eventually Sayyid al imprisoned many of them. And many of these people left Egypt and went to Saudi Arabia, went to Qatar, went to Kuwait. Ben Laden would tell you that he got political by his high school teacher, who was a Muslim Brotherhood expat from Egypt teaching in Saudi Arabia. So what happens when these people come? Their intransigent, puritanical version of Wahhabi Islam in Wahhabism is now politicized, is now radicalized. And as this mix is churning, the United States begins to fight the Soviet Union in Central Asia, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, particularly in Afghanistan, with the idea that these people can be inefficient fighters in the fight against the Soviet Union. That's how bin Laden initially went to Afghanistan. The Saudi government was helping actively in the fight against Communism. The Saudi government was an ally of the United States in the fight against Communism. Uh, The Shah of Iran thought that the Islamists were his allies in the fight against Communism. Israel thought that the radical Islamists will be its allies in the fight against the force that was threatening them most in the 1970s. Who was threatening Israel in the 1970s? It wasn't Hezbollah. It wasn't Hamas. These people, this phenomenon didn't even exist in the 70s. What was the main discourse in radicalism in Islam in that period, in the Arab world in that period, was a form of nationalism, PLO, Yasser Arafat, uh, many other variants. Who could contain these in Egypt, in Iran, in Afghanistan? The United States virtually in all of these places thought that the Islamists would be an ally in the fight against the main threat. And they were right. The Islamists were a good fight ally. What they missed to understand is that the Islamists have an agenda for political power, and that Muslim Brotherhood was giving it to them. So you now have a mix of an intransigent form of Islam imbued with the political radical ideology of Muslim Brotherhood that goes to Afghanistan and becomes trained, becomes uh, organized, and helps defeat the Soviet Union. Again, as Bin Laden says in one of his interviews, he said, when we defeated the Soviet Union, we said, OK, why can't we defeat the United States? So we decided to take the fight to the United States. This is what is happening at this period. We are now about 1980s 1990s. This is what has happened in much of the Islamic world as I'm sure you have now by now heard. The Islamic world is essentially divided into two groups. The sunnis which are about 80% of the muslim world and the shiites which are the rest. The shiites are a majority in Iran, they're becoming a big majority in Lebanon, they're a big majority in uh, Bahrain, in Azerbaijan, but very few places. The Sunnis are the great bulk, bulk of the Islamic world. And Wahhabism is one version of Sunni faith. So, what is happening about this period in Iran, the same period that Abdul Wahhab begins to articulate his radical Islamism, you have a radical Islamism emerge in Iran as well amongst the Shiites. Again, until 1970s, this isn't a global problem. 1979, one of the advocates of this radical Islam, radical Shiite Islam, comes to power in Iran. His name is Ayatollah Khomeini. And begins to say, virtually, all of the things that some of the Wahhabis were saying with small changes. We want the government of Sharia. We want a global Islam. You have all heard the name IRGC, I suspect, the Revolutionary Guards. These are the Praetorian Guards of Iran. These are the ideological defenders of the revolution in Iran. IRGC stands for Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. What is missing from this is Iran. It is the Islamic, radical Islamic Revolutionary core of the entire world. Their claim is to a global uh, mission. That's why the name of Iran is missing from the most important military force in the country. It's, you know, it's like uh, calling the United States military, uh, global military. You would find this rather unusual. Uh, but this is exactly what the RRGC has done. And in order to foment this revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini began to create proxies in the region. First and foremost, they decided that they need to take on Israel. And they need to create trouble for Israel so that Israel doesn't create trouble for them, in a sense. And what did they do? They began to arm and train Hezbollah in Lebanon. IRGC began to send commandos, began to send arms, began to send uh, officers to train the Hezbollah, what became known as Hezbollah. And Hezbollah literally means nothing other than the party of God. And the party of God is, interestingly, exactly the term that sometimes ISIS uses to refer to itself. They're at the party of Allah. So as Hezbollah began to increase its power in Lebanon, as after the fall of Saddam Hussein, Iran began to increase its power through Shiites. In Iraq, Saudi Arabia began to get worried. The Sunnis began to get worried that Iran is out to create an empire, that there is a Shiite access at work, Lebanon, Syria, Iran, that Iraq has hegemonic designs. So the Sunnis decided they need an answer to Hezbollah and the radical Shiites in Iraq. And the radical Shiites in Iraq have no doubt are as brutal as the Sunni radicals. One of the reasons that ISIS won in Iraq, one of the reasons that ISIS essentially took a city of 2 million with an estimated 1,100 fighters it isn't just because they were good fighters. It's because the Sunni majority in Mosul decided that they prefer to bed with ISIS than to take their chances with Shiite uh, radicals. So, as this began to, as the problem of Shiite radicals in the region began to become serious, uh, some in Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, in uh, Kuwait, decided that they need to support a radical form of Islam that could withstand up to to the uh, Iranian Shiites. If we have time, I can give you a little bit of the history of this rather remarkable phenomenon. I want to get to ISIS and how out of all of this storm, you now have the most dangerous, efficient, wealthy, well-trained, and methodically uh, murderous group that I have ever seen in the region. And that is called ISIS. And I'll tell you why there is method in their madness and why they're uh, successful. So essentially, uh, the reason it's important to know how ISIS got to where it got is because there are lessons there in how to fight them now. As the United States successfully suppressed Al Qaeda in Iraq, as their Zarqawi was killed, the leader, uh, the U.S. found him in some village and they uh, put a, a bomb on him, and the entire house went, as well as he. Now, some say he was so brutal that some of uh, his own allies might have given the coordinates of where he was. Nobody still knows how the US found him, because he was in some village, outlying village. And one bomb went and finished him. But once he was killed, Zarqawi was killed, uh, once the US efficiently pushed them out of Iraq, where did it go? They went to where there was a vacuum. By then, Syria was a vacuum. And they began to reorganize there, and there they found new allies. Who were the new allies? The generals from Saddam's army who had escaped there, soldiers from Saddam's army who had escaped there, Salafists who had come from all other places. Soon they became a magnet. And in the war, in the war with uh, the murderous Assad regime, many of the neighbors decided that strengthening ISIS is not that bad of an option to get rid of uh, Assad. Turkey essentially opened this border. Turkey became a transit point for Salafists, for jihadists from all over the world who would come to Turkey and cross the border into ISIS. So from Syria, They began to reorganize and began to expand to create what is now a land mass uh, larger than Denmark, a population that is about seven million. Uh, They have a budget of about two billion dollars, two billion. They sell oil, gas, people, antiquities, they're hustlers. They sell drugs. Uh, they have, by some accounts, manufactured a new drug that acts as a speed for their fighters. It keeps them awake for hours and hours, sometimes days. Uh, they run a very efficient, the most efficient social network that any uh, terrorist organization has ever had, bar none. At one day, i give you a couple of statistics. In one day, uh, intelligence agencies decided that ISIS has 100,000 Twitter accounts, 100,000. They shut them down. In less than a day, they had 150,000 new accounts operating. They had a magazine. They still have it. I strongly urge you to go online and read it. It might make you sleepless. It makes me, weeks on end, uh, sleepless. But, you know, somebody has to be sleepless in uh, Stanford after Seattle. Uh, They publish in five different languages. Till about a year and a half ago, they sold their magazine online on Amazon. The magazine is called Dabek. D-A-B-I-Q. David is the name of a village in Syria. They claim that 1,300 years ago, the prophet predicted that if you get the armies of Rome, the United States didn't exist at the time. But Rome did, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. That if you get the armies of rome to come and fight the islamic forces at dabek islam will become victorious over the world based on that they now say we want you to come to dabek come and fight us here well, in other words their theory to the us to the united to the western powers is bring it on to dabek and the end of time will come In the magazine, this magazine is published intermittently. 14 issues have been published. Uh, Every magazine is about 50 pages. In terms of quality of a magazine, I don't know of any online magazine that is more sophisticated in terms of its quality, in terms of images they put. You're in one scene likely to see an image of a beautiful pastoral land, and right next to it, you see an image of a beheaded uh, young man, for example. And the quality, the artistic quality of some of these are truly uh, remarkable, and, but there is a consistency in their message. The consistency in their message is that we are the only version of religion in the world. We have a 50-year plan, and they have laid all of this out and careful. We have a 50-year plan, and we're going to conquer the world. We're going to fly our flag, our black flag, over the White House. First over Eiffel Tower, and then over the White House. I'm almost verbatim quoting them. Now, whether they will do it or not is another story. But I said, there is method to the madness. Now, how are they going to do it? They're going to do it by what they call management of barbarity. Management of Barbarity is literally the name of their book. It's one of their most important books. If you want to read one book that would leave you sleepless for a week, but you'll get to understand the method in the madness, that's the book to read. The US uh, Army in the West Point has translated this. It's available online. It's called Management of Barbarity. It is by one of the most important theorists in radical Islamism. And the theory is basically this, that we're going to create such havoc, we're going to create such barbarity, that we're going to get the West to come and fight us. And when they come and fight us, the prophecy will have been fulfilled. And we're going to manage this in a way that is most economical for us. So we're going to hit you here, they said. And then they say, we need to hit you where you least expect it. And we're going to hit you there. If you had read this book when it was published, you would know that they would attack Paris. You would know that they would attack uh, Southern California. The theory is that the more random the terror, the more efficient it is. They literally tell you, they tell their People. And the number of people they supposedly reach is frightening. Minimally, they reach 10 million people. General Crystal, in one interview, has indicated that they reach 100 million people. That is several times larger than the largest U.S. news uh, channel. 100 million, even 10 million, is a remarkable number. And part of their message is, if you can't come to uh, Syria, don't worry. Go outside, buy a machete, kill anybody you find. That's, I'm literally telling you this. And if you kill anybody you find, you've done too good. One, you've created the mayhem that we need to create. Two, you have eliminated the gray zone. As I said, there is method to the madness. What is the gray zone? They say Muslims can only live under a Muslim ruler. They themselves. Nobody else is a Muslim ruler. So the only place Muslim rulers can have safe haven, they say, is under Caliphate in Uh, Islamic State. So how are we going to make sure everybody comes here? We have to convince everybody that everywhere else you live, it's unsafe. You will only be safe if you come to us. Now, the reason this becomes a very important part of the argument is that we now have a new page in the history of Islam and the West. For 1,300 years, there were always many, many, many more Christians and Jews living amongst Muslims than there were Muslims living in the West. Now that history has completely changed. Now you have 40-odd million Muslims in Europe, You have five million Muslims in the United States. And the number is increasing. As Russia keeps bombing, as ISIS keeps destruction, as Iran keeps its power, more and more people are going to leave and they're going to come. Now, why is that a problem? It isn't a problem in one sense, because the greatest majority of Muslims in the world have nothing to do that is very favorable about ISIS. They think ISIS is very, very bad for them. But in order for them to eliminate that gray zone, they don't need too many people. They need a very, 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 very small portion of this migration. As the, let's say, five more events like Paris or Brussels happens in Europe or happens in the United States, what you're going to get is much more more, much, much more uh, anti-Islamic sentiments in the United States. And as you get anti-Islamic sentiments, their propaganda picks it up. Their propaganda picks it up and says, and they do it very efficiently almost immediately they pick it up and say didn't we tell you that democracy is a trick I was just reading this this morning their latest issue they have a whole article why democracy is a sick religion because it accepts plurality we don't want that plurality they say we want absolute certainty of divine law and if they begin convincing a very, very, very small number of people to go their way, then they can wreak havoc. And they're very efficient in mobilizing people. They don't need to mobilize too many people, but they're very efficient. And if you hit them in one place efficiently, as the US did in Iraq, what did they do? They metastasized into Syria and came back. Now, the U.S. and its allies, 66 countries supposedly are now fighting ISIS and they have lost very little territory, best 15, 20 percent. And what they have lost there, they have more than gained in Libya. They have more than gained in Egypt. They have more than gained in Afghanistan. They are metastasizing by some accounts, there are now 60 countries. 60 countries where some radical Islamist has indicated some form of allegiance to this phenomenon. So fighting it isn't just a military option. The military is an essential component of it, but it's not. Unless you have a cultural uh, confrontation with this phenomenon, the phenomenon that says, I am the only rightful. Uh, inheritor of the Abrahamic religion and anybody who's not with me, I feel right to kill him. I'm almost verbatim quoting them. Uh, unless you have a sophisticated system to counter this, uh, you're not going to stop this flow. As I said, the flow, in order to be destructive, doesn't need to be much. And they are extremely extremely efficient at mobilizing they are extremely patient at how they recruit and once they get someone hooked they send them to the encrypted uh, system of internet where no one seems to be able to find them uh, i urge you to read an, a report in the new york times i think it was about how they went about mobilizing a young lady who was a sunday school teacher in the state of Washington. It took them a year and a half before they even mentioned the idea that they were part of ISIS. They sent her cards. They sent her chocolate. They sent her books. They promised to find a husband for her if she goes to London. And the only reason that the FBI got involved was because her mother began to notice that she was getting gifts where she had never received gifts before. But to think that they have the patience for a year to say nothing, to just hook on. Uh, One of my students wrote a brilliant paper about how they operate on the social media. And this student uh, was himself part of a startup. He says, they are as efficient in using the social media as any startup has been. This is they use all the metrics that the startups do. They do mass marketing. They study metrics. They study who is staying on their website, who is staying on which sites. And from that, they begin to collect. So uh, I think I've depressed you enough, right? <laughs> For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dauer for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.